Malachi chapter, we're going to look at chapter 2, 17, down to chapter 3, verse 5. Now, this passage is going to be a little uh, counterintuitive because um, God, we all know, is very patient, right? Um, uh, From the beginning to the end of the Bible, um, you know, this attribute of God is, is highlighted, God's patience, right? Numerous times in the Bible, as we read and just read in Psalm 103, verse 8, uh, the Bible says that the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. Okay, so thi- this, pa- this passage is going to be a little counterintuitive because uh, it talks about God getting tired of us, right? So it, it seem, may seem like a little contradictory, uh, but let's stick with it and see what, Malachi is saying to us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for another opportunity to read your word, uh, not only as individuals, but collectively as a, as a group. We pray, Lord, that you would keep working in our hearts and minds. Oftentimes we come to your word to find uh, comfort and peace or, or blessings. And yet we also have to take the difficult things that your word has to say. And we've been seeing that chapter after chapter in Malachi. We ask, Lord, that you would help us not to look away, not to downplay the things that are said in this book. But I pray, Lord, that uh, you would give us hearts and minds that long to obey you and to give you the genuine worship that you deserve. We thank you now for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, um, I want to reiterate that our God is infinite in his patience. But at the same time, God's patience can run out, okay? And, and, and we know that it ultimately will run out when we uh, get to the book of Revelation and we see the tribulation period where God's patience is set to the side and he comes completely in his wrath, right? <coughs> but uh, in this passage, what I want us to see is that God's patience runs out for those people who intentionally test him. In what appears to be a contradictory statement, we can sometimes weary God who is otherwise infinitely patient. The Jews in Malachi's day had reached this point in time. They had annoyed God. They had annoyed him to the point (coughs) that he was tired of their shenanigans, and so he sends Malachi to tell them that they had wearied him and what he intended to do about it. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, down to chapter 3, verse 5, we read these words. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, all who do evil are good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or by asking, Where is the God of justice? See, I am sending my messenger to prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, indeed, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the descendants of Levi and refine them like gold and silver until they present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift to bear witness against the sorcerer, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers and their wages, the widow and the orphan, against those who thrust aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. God begins by telling the people that he is annoyed. I've already said that God is a patient God, but at times his patience does run out. 
And God had reached this point of being annoyed with the nation of Israel, and he was tired of hearing their words. Now, the question is, what could they possibly have been saying that got on God's nerves? What were they saying that annoyed him to the point that he said he's wearied or tired of them? I think that here Malachi is telling us there's two things that they were saying that was causing God to become tired of them. The first thing that they or we can say and do to annoy God or to weary God is to demean his holy character and his nature. To demean his holy character and his nature. And the second thing is when we tell God how to do his job. Those two. Those are two points that I'm going to focus on, and then uh, we'll talk about what God intends to do when people get on his nerves. (laughs) The people calling into question God's holiness. They were saying, all who do evil are good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Now, of course, we know, as we've seen over the last two weeks, the people were angry because of their lack of prosperity. They felt they were back in the land. They were God's people. They had rebuilt the temple. And so God owed them his blessings. And because they were not financially prospering the way they believed that they should, they started to question God. They started to look around and seeing their neighbors who were wicked, who were evil, who were not following the Lord, and it seemed like they were reaping all of these financial blessings. And so they began to question, (coughs) what's up with God? They couldn't understand how they, the good guys, you know how we as Christians be like, we're the good ones. They couldn't understand how the good guys were struggling while the bad guys were having all of the fun. Isn't that how we do? We see all the rich people driving around in in expensive cars, and we're like, where's my blessings? I go to church. I read my Bible. I give to God. Right? I'm on a ministry. Why is God not blessing me? Why are all of the people who don't go to church, who don't know the Lord, why are they prospering? And I'm over here struggling, trying to do all of the right things, but I'm struggling. In their own self-righteousness, they concluded that God delights in those who do evil or that somehow God sees the people who are doing evil as good. They concluded that God must not be as holy or as good as they believed he was. Because if God was holy and good, he would bless them, right? Bless me, God. And punish the wicked people. That, that's how we as church folk think. Right. Their reasoning went something like this. If God is good, right? No, no I'm sorry. If I were God, because this is how we all we do, right? Well, if I was God, right, I would bless all of the good people, and I would just blow all of the bad people off the face of the earth. Right? That, that's how we think. Okay? We look, and you know that's how you think, right? You, you, we look at the news. And you're like, man, if I could, I would just, <laughs> right? But for all of the Christians, right, every week, Mega Millions, Powerball, right? <laughs> like, we just, we just, we just hit all the blessings, okay? We, we get all the blessings, right? But, but, but we would definitely harm those people who we believe is evil. But because God is allowing the good people to suffer, while the bad people were prospering, they believed that God himself must not be good. Now, this line of thinking is very common today. If you speak to most people, right, um, who care about um, injustices in the world or people starving or struggling, this is a very common thought, right? They, they think that, well, if God is good, why would he allow children in Africa to starve, Right? I can't look at my child and see them suffering and not do something to intervene. So, so God must not be good. 
if he does not intervene and bless people who are good. Now, <coughs> some people use this as a way of doubting the existence of God. You all met uh, my friend uh, who's an atheist, right? He uses this as his reason for why God does not exist. Okay, God can exist because if God really did exist, you know, he would, I guess, rain down hamburgers from heaven and feed all of the little kids in Africa. Right. And so so he believes God can exist because he doesn't fix every problem. (coughs) But that's not what we see happening with people who know God. Right. Like the Jews in Malachi's day. Many people who have a relationship with God, right, who who have a relationship with Jesus, we use this line of thinking to justify the reason that we either walk away from God. Well, the reason I don't pray, the reason why I don't keep coming to church, the reason why I don't do this is because I prayed and asked God for these benefits or these blessings and he did not come through for me. So we we use it either as a way why we walk away from God or we use this as the reasoning of why we live half-hearted devotion towards him. Well, I come to church, but it doesn't really. uh, I'm going to give him half of what he asked for. I'll I'll come to church, but I'm not going to really get involved in ministry. I'll come to church, but I I don't really pray because there's no point in that. I'll come to church, but I'm not really going to give. I'm going to come to church, but but I'm going to reserve the right to hold on to living life the way I choose. Because if God is not going to give it to me, I'm going to do it my own way. Everybody with me? What is the point? This is the thinking. What is the point in living a holy lifestyle? sacrificing all the pleasure that this world has to offer if those who live in sin will receive greater blessings. I mean, it's common sense, right? It It makes sense to think that this world has so much pleasure, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life, has so much pleasure to offer. Why would I restrict myself from those things in order to live holy before God, right? If he's just going to allow me to struggle, but the people who are out there indulging in the lust of the flesh, indulging in the lust of the eyes, indulging in the pride of life, they are receiving all of the benefits. They're happy. They living it up. They're partying. And I'm over here Saturday night. <laughs> What's she say? <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> I'm here Saturday night instead of at the club like I used to be. I'm sitting here getting ready for church on Sunday. And, and they party and having fun. What's the point of living holy if God is blessing all of the unsaved people? The people were suffering from two things, in my opinion. And I think that th- this is the same two things that we suffer from today when we take on this line of reasoning. Number one, they and we suffer from self-righteousness. And number two, they and we suffer by not trusting God's plan as he has detailed it in his word. They were suffering from self-righteousness because they were measuring God against themselves. They were measuring God against their own standards of what they believed God should be doing. Well, if I were God... I would do this. And because God isn't doing what I would do, then something's wrong with God. Now, we all think that way, if we were going to be honest. I think that way sometimes. That those are usually the times where I'm I'm done with this. I'm not, I'm tired of this. I'm going to watch TV. I'm not praying and studying and making no sermons. I'm I'm mad with God right now. Why'd you let this happen, God? I've been praying and asking for this stuff, and, and all of this things happen. Then Saturday night, I'm like, oh, shoot, I got to get my sermon together. 
They ain't going to want to hear you was mad with God, so you ain't write no sermon. <laughs> okay. But, I mean, I- if we're honest, all of us are like that with God sometimes. Right? At one time. Okay. <laughs> at least once. Okay. I, I mean, because we all go through things, and, and, and we know that God has the power to fix it. And so we fast and we pray and we ask God, please do this for me. And then God is silent. He doesn't come through. And, 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 and we, we, we think like, well, wait a minute, you know, it, I would have done it. Well, why wouldn't God do this? So in our self-righteousness, we judge God by our standards instead of recognizing, no, God is judging us by his standards. He's the one that's holy. He's the one that is good. He's the one that is all-knowing. The second thing that they suffered from, as I said, was they did not trust God's plan as he has explained it in his word. Now, I want to read for you all Psalm 37. It's 40 verses. I'm going to read it very quickly. Um, I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. You can go and and reread it uh, later on. Uh, yourself. But in Psalm 37, God explains his plan. He explains why he blesses the wicked and why he does not always give material blessings to his people. Listen to what he says, Psalm 37. Don't worry about the wicked or envy those who do wrong. For like grass, they soon fade away. Like spring flowers, they soon wither. Trust in the Lord and do good. Then you will live safely in the land and prosper. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. Commit everything you do to the Lord. Trust him and he will help you. He will make your innocence radiate like the dawn and the justice of your cause will shine like the noonday sun. Be still in the presence of the Lord and wait patiently for him to act. Don't worry about evil people who prosper or fret about their wicked schemes. Stop being angry. Turn from your rage. Do not lose your temper. It only leads to harm. For the wicked will be destroyed, but those who trust in the Lord will possess the land. Soon the wicked will disappear. Though you look for them, they will be gone. The lowly will possess the land and will live in peace and prosperity. The wicked plot against the godly. They snarl at them in defiance, but the Lord just laughs, for he sees their day of judgment coming. The wicked draw their swords and string their bows to kill the poor and the oppressed, to slaughter those who do right, but their swords will stab their own hearts, and their bows will be broken. It is better to be godly and have little than to be evil and rich. For the strength of the wicked will be shattered, but the Lord takes care of the godly. Day by day, the Lord takes care of the innocent, and they will receive an inheritance that lasts forever. They will not be disgraced in hard times. Even in famine, they will have more than enough. But the wicked will die. The Lord's enemies are like flowers in a field. They will disappear like smoke. The wicked borrow and never repay, but the godly are generous givers. Those the Lord blesses will possess the land, but those he curses will die. The Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. Though they stumble, they will never fall, for the Lord holds them by the hand. Once I was young, and now I am old, yet I have never seen the godly abandoned or their children begging for bread. The godly always give generous loans to others, and their children are a blessing." Turn from evil and do good, and you will live in the land forever. For the Lord loves justice, and he will never abandon the godly. He will keep them safe forever, but the children of the wicked will die. The godly will possess the land and will live there forever. The godly offer good counsel. They teach right things from wrong. They have made God's law their own, so they will never slip from his path. The wicked wait in ambush for the godly looking for an excuse to kill them. But the Lord will not let the wicked succeed or let the godly be condemned when they are put on trial. Put your hope in the Lord. Travel steadily along his path. 
He will honor you by giving you the land. You will see the wicked destroyed. I have seen wicked and ruthless people flourishing like a tree in its native soil. But when I looked again, they were gone. Though I searched for them, I could not find them. Look at those who are honest and good, for a wonderful future awaits those who love peace. But the rebellious will be destroyed. They have no future. The Lord rescues the godly. He is their fortress in times of trouble. The Lord helps them, rescuing them from the wicked. He saves them, and they find shelter in him. Now, I read this long psalm, but let me sum it up. In essence, David is saying that the reason that God blesses the wicked is because this world and this life is all they have. They have 50, 60, 70, 80 years, okay? A lot of them don't. They have 20 or 25, right, because of the lives that they're, that they're leading, right? But he's blessing them because God is good to all, as Scripture repeatedly says. He's good to everyone. You want to live in rebellion to him? He is good enough to allow you to experience the benefits of that. I don't love God. I, I, I don't want to live according to his word. I just want to live the life, the best life this world has to offer. God is good to all. He's even good to Satan. Satan rebelled against God. He wanted to take God's place. He wanted to be the king of the world. And what has God done? Jesus even says that Satan is the God of this world. God gave him everything he wanted. Take the rule of the world. Now, we're suffering because God's, I mean, Satan's opinion of what a good world is is not that good. And we see it on the news every day. Okay. But God is good to everyone, even those who are in rebellion to them, because he knows that for all eternity, they're going to suffer. And so he's giving them all of their benefits and blessings right now. Now, what David says is for us, don't fret because of evildoers. <laughs> don't worry when you see your enemies or evil people prospering. Don't worry about that. The reason that God is blessing them is because they're only going to experience these benefits for a very short time. Then they're going to suffer for all eternity. But you, <laughs> right, the righteous, those people who have a relationship with Jesus Christ, those people who have a relationship with God, he says, God is not giving you all the blessings that the world has to offer. He's asking you to suffer temporarily. He's asking you to suffer temporarily because for all of eternity, millions of years from now, you will still be experiencing all the benefits and blessings of the Lord. So he's saying for the next for 50, 60, 70, 80 years, I need y'all to just struggle. He's teaching you all how to trust him. My plan is a good plan. <laughs> but you got to trust me. You need endurance. And so instead of giving us all of the benefits and blessings of the world, God gives us himself. We see that re repeatedly out in Psalm 37. He holds the hand of the godly. He blesses them. You will receive the land forever. Once God comes in judgment, he will destroy all of his enemies, and then you will receive all of the blessings and benefits forever. But in this meantime, he's asking all of us, to accept his love, his presence, his endurance, and the knowledge that God's plan is a good plan and that when it is complete, we'll understand. We have to learn how to trust God and be patient. The second thing that God says here in this passage through Malachi that annoys him that will uh, make him tired of, of our words <coughs> is people telling him how to do his job. 
the nation of Israel, much like us today, <laughs> we don't know how to really trust God and be patient. Right? We, we, God, we, we, we need it right now. We, we need you to answer our prayer right now. And the people of Israel wanted God to act right now. They wanted God to, t- um, to tell God what to do, right? You got to punish those people. And when to do it, you have to do it right now. And that is what they meant when they said, where is the God of justice? Right? Because the word justice, the Hebrew word, means justice, but it also means judgment. God, you, you need to come in judgment. You need to judge those people right now. <coughs> now, I know a, a little bit how God feels. I'm not God, but I do know how he feels. Routinely, you know, I'm told uh, what I should be doing and how I should be doing it, right? Um, this comes from church members, politicians. Uh, it even comes from people who hate the church. Um, I remember when I was in college, I was talking to uh, a, a guy that was uh, at Morgan with me, and and and, and he was, uh, we were having a conversation about um, just different things, and and so he was upset because he said the church has a lot of money, and the church needs to be giving their money to the people in the community to help the people in the community, and I'm like, well, tell me some things about this. And, well, you know, you have a lot of single mothers out here. You have you know, all of these other things. And so we need, the church needs to start giving money to those people to, to help them out. I said, I got you. I said, so let me ask you a question. If the church should give its money to people in the community to help them out financially, do the people in the community have a responsibility to live according to the, you know, the, the, what the Bible says is correct? No. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. So what you're saying is people should go engage in premarital sex, have children that they can't afford to take care of, but then the church should pay for their kids for them because they don't want to wait until marriage like God said. I got you. I understand. (laughs) So, so, So everybody knows what the church is supposed to be doing, even people who hate the church. Matter of fact, this week I was listening. I, w- I mean, just just this week I read this article, a news in the newspaper, uh, that was the the writer of the article was telling us what the real Christian response to vaccines and pandemics are. The real Christian response, and it's amazing because I was wondering, now how is this person who clearly in writing the article don't know Jesus, hates the church? How does he know what the real Christian response is supposed to be? I'm, I'm not saying whether he, whatever he said in the article was right or wrong. I'm just confused about how someone who does not go to church, doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, and clearly hates the church, know what the real Christian response is supposed to be. You might want to become a Christian. <laughs> You know, come be a part of the body, and, and then, then we can listen to you. Now, I may be wrong or prideful in this next statement. I am a sinner saved by grace. <laughs> but, but it always amazes me, and I, I want to say this graciously as possible. It always amazes me how the people who admit to knowing the least about the Bible always knows the most about what the church should be doing. And I bet this is exactly how God felt when the people of Israel were saying, where is the God of justice? Where is he? Why is he not coming to act right now the way I think he should? He was probably annoyed because people who don't know how to run their own lives were telling him how he needs to run the universe. The truth be told, all of us struggle in this area. We can't get ourselves out of paper bags that we put ourselves in in life. But we know exactly how God is supposed to run the universe. 
when they asked, where's the God of justice? They were saying God needs to do something now about the injustices in the world. God needs to come now and punish the wicked. And in response, God says that he is definitely coming in justice or in judgment. And then he gives us in this passage what I believe is one of the most vivid images of the ministry of Jesus. Let's look back at um, uh, chapter three, verse one. God begins by telling the people that he is definitely going to come and punish the wicked, but it won't be in the way that they believe. God is a just God and he will always judge sin. But that doesn't mean God is going to come and judge at the time that we choose or in the way that we choose. Now, he starts off this passage, verse one, with, with, with what I believe is one of the clearest passages in the Old Testament about the deity of Jesus Christ. Okay, that clearly, I don't see how someone can walk away from this passage and not see, yeah, Jesus is God. Okay, now listen to what he says in verse one. In verse one, he says, "See, I am sending my messenger to prepare the way before me." And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Indeed, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, in this passage, right, um, we're talking about there's three people in this passage. It is clear there are three people in this passage. Okay, so verse first, he says, I am sending my messenger to prepare the way before me. Now, who is me in this passage? Okay, we see at the end, he says, the Lord of hosts. And of course, we know that this is talking about Yahweh, right? Jehovah. Okay. So God, the father is speaking. He says, I'm sending my messenger to prepare the way before me. So there is whoever this messenger is. Okay. Now, when we turn to the new Testament, we know that this messenger, of course, is going to be, well, when we turn to the end of the book of Malachi, we know that the messenger is supposed to be Elijah. Okay. Um, but when we turn to the, to the new Testament, Right. We see that that John the Baptist fulfills this ministry in Jesus's life. Okay. So we have God, the father, we have whoever this messenger is going to be. But then he says, he says, I'm going to send the messenger before me. Right. I'm sending the messenger before me and the Lord whom you seek will come to his temple. Who? How did he switch from? I'm coming. I'm going to send a messenger before me and he is coming. Who is this he? Right. So he says, I'm going to send the messenger before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of this covenant. Three things he says here about Jesus in this passage that clearly let us see that, that Jesus is God. Number one, notice when the word Lord here. How is it spelled in your Bible? Capital L, lowercase O-R-D. Look at the end of chapter of, of verse one, right? You see where it says Lord of hosts. How does that spell? All caps, L-O-R-D, okay? Now, when you see these differences, the, the, the English translators of the Bible they ha are helping us here to see the different words that's used uh, for, for Lord, right? So when you see capital, all capital, L-O-R-D, right? That's to let you know that in the Hebrew text, that is what we call the tetragrammaton, right? It is the name of God, Yahweh, right? Or in our newer translation, we say Jehovah, okay? In but in the first part, it's just capital L and then lowercase O-R-D. It's letting you know that in the Hebrew text, the name is not using the name Yahweh. It's using the Hebrew word Adonai. OK, and the word Adonai, when you see it repeatedly used throughout the um, about the Old Testament, it refers to God as being the master of the universe. Now, it says. I'm sending my messenger before me and the master of the universe whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Whoever this master of the universe is in this passage is not God the father. 
Anybody see that? The master of the universe, Adonai, will come to his temple. Whoever this person is, he is the owner of the temple. Now you have to ask yourself, how is some person other than God the Father the owner of God's temple? If he's the owner of the temple, he has to be God, right? He's the master of the universe. He's the owner of the temple. And verse 3, he is the messenger of the covenant. And so probably this is a reference to to Jeremiah uh, talking about the new covenant that Jesus comes to institute through his death on the cross. Does everyone see that? So, again, Jesus is the master of the universe. He is the owner of the temple, and he is the messenger of the new covenant. God goes on to say that he will judge the wicked. The only problem is that we don't understand that when we ask God to judge the wicked, he always begins with his people. I love it when people say, God needs to judge people. He needs to deal with sin. And I'm like, does that include you? (laughs) Right? Because when we say God needs to judge sin, we're talking about them. Right? Don't judge my sin. (laughs) Judge their sin. But that's not how God operates. When, when, When God is letting his people know, I am coming, I'm going to judge sin, but I'm going to start with you. The ones who want judgment to come, I'm going to start with you. Right? And that should very quickly let us know, yeah, I should be gracious to other people. <laughs> I shouldn't ask God to punish my enemies because usually he's going to start with me. And this is not something that is, is you know, specific to the Old Testament. If you look in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, right, the Bible tells us that God's judgment is going to start in the house of God. It's going to start with the church. That's where God's judgment begins. God, when Jesus comes back, he starts his judgment with us. We should be very careful when we self-righteously ask God to punish evildoers because he might just start with you. (laughs) Because, again, we're all still sinners. (laughs) Now, the image here of Jesus's ministry and the rest of this passage, it really conflicts with how most people um, uh, understand Jesus, right? Now, when we look at God in the Old Testament, most people say, well, in the Old Testament, God was mean, right? I mean, he, he, he just, pow, 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 he just strike people down, right, on, on the spot, okay, when they did something wrong. And, and he really did sometimes, right? Um, but uh, again, in the Old Testament, he was still gracious and merciful. Okay, he should have killed everybody, and yet he only shows his judgment every once in a while. Okay, but the the impression that we get about God is that in the Old Testament, God is mean. Okay, but in the New Testament, we see that Jesus is is really nice, right? He's the good God, right? Like like him and his father, they play good cop, bad cop. Okay, so like the old in the Old Testament, you know, Jesus, God was the Father was the was the bad cop, and Jesus comes as 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 the good cop, right? Most people see Jesus as this loving pushover who accepts everybody just the way they are. Okay, but as John Benton points out, one of the from this passage, one of the primary purposes of Jesus's ministry would be to purify the worship of God. As we have seen repeatedly in the book of Malachi, God will only accept pure worship. He will not accept our worship, our prayer, or anything that we offer him if we think we're going to live in sin and still offer him worship. We've seen repeatedly in, the, in, the, in, the, in Malachi, don't even come to, to lock the door, he said to the priest. Lock the temple door and don't let anyone in. Why do you even keep coming here? I would prefer you all not to come. Right? Now, that's harsh because we think, 
well, we should let everybody in church. No, God does not believe that. <laughs> That's an American idea. That is not God's idea. <laughs> okay. We believe in democracy. God does not believe this. <laughs> he says, don't come. Lock the door. Do not let them in. He will not accept your worship if you think you're going to live in sin and then come to his house. That's not how God operates. And Malachi tells us here that Jesus' ministry is about purifying his people so that they can offer God pure worship. Listen to what Malachi says again. He says, when Jesus comes, who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the descendants of Levi and refine them like gold and silver until he will refine them Right. He's going to keep you in this process until they present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former days. He's saying that those who approach God need to be washed like laundry <laughs> And refined like silver and gold so they can offer God pure worship, worship that he will accept. So he, he says that, that Jesus' ministry, right, his life and his death was all about taking dirty people, right, and just putting them in the, in the washing machine. Now, that, that it's not like the washing machine that we have. You know, they didn't have one. They just put it in a cycle and it just spin you around, right? The, you know, the old school washboards. Right, where you grate your knuckles trying to clean your clothes, right? He he he's putting you. He's giving you the business. <laughs> okay. You know he he's going to clean up your life so that you can offer God pure worship. He he sits like a refiner of jewelry, right? And I think probably all of us has, has seen some video or something of how they purify silver and gold. How they, they put it into a container. They heat it up so hot that it melts, that, that, that the gold and the silver melts into a liquid. And because the impurities are less dense than the gold itself, all of the impurities rise to the top and then they scrape it off. And they keep heating it and doing that process until all of the dirt and impurities in the silver and gold is gone and the person doing the refining can see his reflection in the silver or gold. That's what God is doing. God, why do you keep putting me in the same situation over and over again? I don't see my reflection in you yet. So I got to turn up the heat. God, why haven't you blessed me with this, that, or the other? You still got some impurities I'm trying to burn out. You keep resisting me. If you would just go along with the process, <laughs> this would go a lot smoother and a lot faster. For he's going to keep washing you. He's going to keep putting you in fiery situations until you look just like him. And then... You can offer God pure worship, worship that God will accept. Now, I wanted to end this. I got five minutes. I wanted to end this by showing us two examples of this in Jesus's ministry. Right. So that, that we don't kind of romanticize Jesus. OK, like he was he was some loving person that, you know, he, we just accept anybody. And you don't have don't worry about changing. God loves you the way you are. And that's true, though. I don't want to I don't want us to miss my point. God does love us the way he are, we, the way we are. He just won't leave us the way we are. OK, so listen to this in Jesus's ministry. Right. Two passages and then I'm done. Matthew, chapter three. Verses one through twelve. Right. This passage is John the Baptist. John the Baptist is is talking to the Pharisees about Jesus's ministry. And this is how he describes 
Jesus's ministry. Verse one, in those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, repent, right? Turn away from your sin. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepared the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Okay, so John the Baptist again is fulfilling this ministry, preparing the way for Jesus to come. Verse four. Now, John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather leather belt around his waist and his food was locust and wild honey. It seems like most of the people that God picked were a little strange. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) right. So so now y'all know why I'm I'm a little off. (laughs) Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him and all the region along the Jordan. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Don't think that just because your, your, your grandmother had a relationship with Jesus, somehow that gets you in good standing. Okay. God, correct, take this stone and create a person that worships him. Okay. Okay. Don't, don't think your ancestry somehow gets you in. Okay. You need to bring forth fruit that's worthy of repentance. Okay. He says, uh, verse 10, even now the axe is lying at the root of the tree. God is about to cut off all of the people who oppose him. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Listen to what he says about Jesus. I baptized you with water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, I'll, I'll, <laughs> church folk are so funny. I um, remember that this uh, church, I'm not going to say what the denomination is, but it was up the street from my seminary. And this is the first time that I actually, t- you know, like understood the doctrine of this particular denomination, right, when I was in seminary. And so they've, they uh, take this passage and, and they, they pray that God will baptize them with fire. Okay. Because, because they believe that this is some special endowment of the Holy Spirit. Right. So because he says, I'm going to baptize, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so they have, you know, there's like levels like the blue fire and the red. You know, I'm just like, you guys are weird. Like, like what's wrong? What's wrong with Christians? Like we always come up with crazy stuff. Now, I, I think that they're missing the point of the passage, though. Okay, being baptized with fire is not a good thing. Okay, listen to the next verse. It says, verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, think about going back to like uh, societies where, you know, they would work in the fields and and they would gather up wheat. Right. They would have uh, like a winnowing, like a fork or a fan or something like that, where they they would take the grains. They would take a fork. They would they would kind of. Some, if they didn't have, they would throw it up in the air and, the, and the, the wheat would fall back down and then the wind would blow off the, the chaff, right? Or they would have this thing where they would just, you know, take it and would sh- um, sift everything out, right? And so they would keep the grain in there. All of the bad stuff would fall to the ground. He's saying that the, the chaff, the stuff that's not useful, the stuff that is th- just waste on the ground, that's going to get burned up. That's going to be thrown into an unquenchable fire, Okay, so when he says he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, the, the, the fire is not a good thing. <laughs> it's talking about judgment. Je- Jesus is, is, is not the, the, the good cop. Okay, he's holy just like his father. He is loving and just and righteous and patient. But just like his father, there's a limit to his patience. He will ultimately come in judgment and 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 he will be 10 times worse than anything you see about his father in the Old Testament. 
Okay, read the book of Revelation. And when he returns, his feet touches the Mount of Olives, boom, causes an earthquake, splits the mountain in half, creates a valley 70 miles long. And the blood of the people that he slaughters in that valley will be up to the, the length of the horse's bridle, about five feet deep, 70 miles long. Jesus is not as nice as you think, as most people think he is. He hates sin, and he will judge sin. Matthew chapter 23, I'm over my time, give me two minutes. Matthew chapter 23, most people skip this passage, you know, like they skip the passage of Jesus, like kicking over the tables and beating people with the whips in the, in the, in the, <laughs> in the temple. OK, we, we, we skip this passage. Right. And they say, see, when you talk to people, see, you got to talk to them nice and polite. Jesus wasn't nice and polite to people in this passage. Listen to what Jesus said. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses, seat. Therefore, do whatever they teach you and follow it. But do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on the shoulders of others, but they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. They, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. The only reason that these Pharisees are doing good deeds, giving their tithes, giving money to the poor, they're doing it so that you can be, they can be seen, right? Like, oh, I want them to see me put this big check in the offering. Why pastor don't let us walk no more so they can see me put my offering in? <laughs> All right. They, they only do it <laughs> so that they can be seen, right? For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Talking about the big stoles that they will wear, okay? Right, they, you know, they, they had the big broad ones, like the people with the biggest or the widest stoles, right? They were the most prestigious, yeah. Verse 6. They love to have the place of honor at banquets and best seats in the synagogues. Like, when you come to church, why you got to always sit on the front row? Why you got to have the seat all the way up front all the time, right? They, they got to be seen. Okay, I'm not talking about people on the front row. Don't, don't <laughs> believe me. I'm just using that as an example. I'm just saying. But you know how church folk, we like to sit in the same seat. And if somebody sitting in our seat, we mad. That's my seat. Okay. They love to have the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues and to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to have people call them rabbi. Okay. Hey, pastor. Hey, bishop. Hey, the, you know. They, they love the, 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 I literally heard this man lay somebody out because they called him pastor so-and-so. And he was like, my name is apostle. And he said it very long, apostle. And I'm just standing there like, don't, don't say it, don't say names, don't say names. <laughs> I'm just like, wow. They, we got you, they love to be called certain names in public. And that's why I tell people, they're like, oh, I'm sorry. Can you j just call me what's on my birth certificate? You can never go wrong. <laughs> okay, that's, that's, that's it. Don't need, I don't need the title. Just call me what's on my birth certificate. Okay, verse 8. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all students. And call no one your father on earth, right? For you have one father, the one in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. All who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. Verse 13, here we go. But woe to you! scribes and Pharisees, all right? And when we say woe, we're talking about the judgment of hell. Woe to you, scribes and heresy, um, 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 Pharisees, hypocrites. Now, when you start a sermon with somebody, like, I'm going to preach my sermon to you. You are a hypocrite. They be like, oh, this is going to be bad today, okay? <laughs> right? And then they be like, well, pastor shouldn't say stuff like that. He's going to hurt people's feelings. Jesus did not care at this point, okay? Right? He, he, listen, you got to get him in check. Listen to what he says. You lock people out of the kingdom of heaven, but you do not go in yourselves, and when others are going in, you stop them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, 
hypocrites, for you cross sea and land to make a single convert, and you make the new convert twice as much a child of hell as yourself. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the sanctuary is bound by nothing, but whoever swears by the gold on the sanctuary is bound by the earth. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the sanctuary that has made the gold sacred? And you say, whoever swears by the altar is bound by nothing, but whoever swears by the gift that is on the altar is bound by the oath. How blind you are! For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the sanctuary swears by it and by the one who dwells on it. And whoever swears by the heaven swears by the throne of God and the one who is seated on it. I'm not going to explain all of these things. We went through this when we probably 10 years ago when we went through the series on Matthew. We might have to bring that back. Verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe, mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, and mercy, and faith. I think this verse would be good for our culture today, right? We, we focus on certain things, but Jesus says there's more important things to focus on as well, like justice, and mercy, and faith. It is these you ought to have practiced, right? You should tithe. Mint and dill and cumin, all of those things, without neglecting justice and mercy and faith. You can do both. That is his point. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside also may become clean. You know what he's saying? He says, you all come to church with your Sunday best on, looking all sanctified, but on the inside, you are full of dead men's bones. You dirty on the inside, but you think you're doing something because you come looking good on the outside. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside look beautiful, but inside they're full of, of the bones of dead, of the dead and of all kinds of filth. So you also on the outside look righteous to others, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your ancestors. You know what he's saying? Because you know what happens right after this, right? He's saying, you all are the descendants of the ones who killed the prophets, but you act like you are more righteous than them. What you need to do is finish their job. What was he talking about? You're about to prove that you are, you are just like your ancestors. Fill up then the measure of your ancestors. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how can you escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets, sages, and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town, so that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all this will come upon this generation. Now, I don't know about you all, but that don't sound like Jesus was being too nice. <laughs> Jesus didn't sound real nice in that passage. He just hit them one after the other, one after the other. And now people will say, well, wait a minute. Well, that was Jesus. He's God. He can say those things. <laughs> okay, and That's true. Because right. I tell you, if I said it, I'm going to be angry if I say something like that. <laughs> okay. But what's the point that Jesus is trying to make? The point is that you can't always be nice in ministry, right? Because the point is you're separating the wheat from the chaff. And sometimes in order to separate the good from the bad, you have to be mean. 
because Jesus's ministry was about separating those people who were going to give God genuine, pure worship and letting the other people know where they're headed. Malachi, as we keep uh, coming back to in, in this passage, Malachi, again, this is why our series is called Authentic Worship. <laughs> because we, all of us, we all, me in, in included, we tend to to live like, we don't say this um, because we know better, <laughs> right? Uh, but in our actions, right, because this is what, the, what, what Malachi is addressing. He is addressing the people's actions. They were doing all of the right things. They were coming to the temple. They were bringing sacrifices to the temple, right? They were, they were doing all of the right things. But their lives were showing that they truly did not worship or love God. And so Malachi, chapter after chapter, he's, 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 he's trying to hold a mirror up to make us look at our lives, not what we say. Do you love God? Oh, yes, God is good. I love God. He is so great. Well, why are you living like that if God is so great? Because it is your life that tells God what you truly love and believe, not what we say. So Malachi is hitting us week after week after week. Because he, he wants us to examine ourselves. Because our lives have to match up with what we say we believe. Now, the good thing here is I didn't read this verse. I did have this on um, verse six connected with this passage. But as I'm reading, thinking about it last night, I was working on this. I'm like, mm, I, must, I think the verse six would be better to go with, um, with the next section. Um, and so he says uh, in verse six, he says, because I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jerusalem, have not been destroyed. Because God does not change, right? Be because he swore a promise to Abraham that he was going to, to remain the God of his descendants, he didn't throw them away. And, and because of God's faithfulness, he does the same thing to us. We fail him. I, I was saying this the other day. I'm like, I fail God every single day. Every single day, I fail God in some way, right? But he's faithful. He has promised he will never leave us nor forsake us, right? And so, so, so he puts up with me, <laughs> right? Not because I'm any good, but just because he's faithful. He does not change. So I think that this passage is, is, is great to go along with what we'll see next week because he goes, he says, because I do not change, you have not been destroyed. Verse 8, return to me. And I will return to you. I'm faithful. <laughs> I, I will not throw you away. I want you to come back. And if you come back to me, I will, I, will, I will come back to you. I will give you all of the things that I've promised you if you come back to me. Okay. And so this is what we'll pick up next week. We'll pick up with this idea of what does it mean to return to God? Now, it's interesting because in this section... Right. It just seems weird. I was talking to Janita about it. And she was like, mm, I, don't, I don't know if I see that yet. And I'm like, I promise you it's in there. Right. <laughs> so um, but it's funny that the section where he talks about return to me and I will return to you is the same exact passage that he says, will a man rob God? Look at the verses. Return to me and I will return to you. Why are you saying return to you? In what way shall we return, they say. Next verse, will a man rob God? I'm like, what? You said come back. How, how should we come back? It's by bringing tithes and offerings to my house. It's like, what? That don't go together. Now, I explained it to Janita. She won't have to take a minute to ponder on on, on, the, on the, the, the thinking of this passage, right? But, but we will look at that. How, 
how does giving in church signal to God that we have returned to him with our whole heart? We pick that up next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today that we are able to come and to hear your word. Your word, as we see in Hebrews, is a two-edged sword. Uh, As I said, uh, sometimes you you have to operate on us. You have to perform surgery on us because we can so easily think that uh, we can have one foot in the world and one foot in the church and that there's nothing wrong with that. And yet you are showing us routinely through this series that you will not accept that type of worship. You will only receive worship that is pure and authentic. And the only way our worship can be pure and authentic is if we are consistently living lives that are are designed to please you in the choices that we make, in the places that we go, in the things that we say and do and think. And too often, Lord, even myself, we, we, we get into the habit of thinking that, that just because I have a relationship with Jesus that, that I can go and do whatever I want and, and you'll be standing there waiting for us. And that's only half true. You have promised that you will never leave us nor forsake us, but you will spank us. <laughs> You will purify us. You will refine us the way that silver is refined. And sometimes the truth be told, the the reason that we're going through some of the things that we're going through is, is simply because you are disciplining us to try to cleanse us of the filth that we keep bringing into our hearts and lives. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that you are a holy and awesome God. Or as we saw earlier in Malachi, that your name is to be reverenced in all the earth. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to work on living in a way that honors and pleases you, not because we're being legalistic and thinking that if we follow certain rules, we'll get your blessings, because that's, that's not true either. But what is true is that we live our lives in a certain way because we love you and because we want to make you happy. And if you decide to bless us with benefits, then that's great. If not, we need to learn how to trust you to know that your plan is good and that we will get all the benefits one day, even if it's in heaven. Pray that you would give us endurance, Lord. Help us not to weary you with our words. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to work on us as you promised that you will. You are going to purify your people so that we can offer you praise and worship and glory and honor that you deserve. I pray, Lord, that when you do these things in our lives, you don't find resistance from us, but that we willingly become living sacrifices. We thank you for all these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.